stir you up by reminding. And in verse 15 of chapter 1, to ensure that you always have. This is a last known writing of a man who had met Jesus some 30 to 40 years earlier. The last 500 words or so of what we have by his hand. Jesus had told him, Peter, his audience is wider in this epistle than in the first. Here it's to those who have obtained like precious faith. I know I said those words a lot last time I taught. I want to say those words to myself continually. I have like precious faith to Peter. I have a precious faith that's been given to me by God, by Jesus, that was handed to me. I didn't obtain it by doing some great work of my own. I stood, I stood in line and said, yes, can I have somebody handed me a like precious faith? And he says, you can work on this and you can grow this, by the way, as you journey. But that like precious faith was obtained from God, not by some great work that I did. I'm not afraid. I used to be afraid to repeat things over and over again. I thought, oh, my gosh, they're going to be like, he just keeps saying the same thing. We need a different teacher, we need a different preacher. He just keeps saying the same thing. They're repeated throughout the Bible over and over again. And these things, Peter... Reminder, reminder, I will not be negligent, negligent to remind you. I will stir you up by reminding. I will ensure that you always have a reminder. And this is the last thing we have by his hand. So fortunately for us, the audience of his first letter kept it, and we've got that as well. So this is Peter, whose brother Andrew brought him to Jesus. And who, at the same time as James and John, their fishing partners, left their nets and followed Jesus. He said, I will make you fishers of men. This is Peter, who had walked with Jesus, who had talked with Jesus, who had eaten with Jesus, who had heard him speak so many of the words we diligently searched that we might grow in our knowledge of him. I, I, I was just imagining, you know, them... In, in their travels, sleeping out, you know, under the stars at night. And Jesus saying, hey, look at that one. I remember when I made that. Right? So we, when, we, when we have a picture of something on our phones and we want to see it closer, we go like that, right? And it zooms in and we can see it closer. I'm imagining Jesus going, I want you to be able to see this better, Peter. Look at that. Look at that. I'm, you know, I'm taking great liberty in, in, in my imaginings of what occurred, but the fact remains that he spent those three years with Jesus, and now we're getting this letter 30 years odd afterwards. He probably heard God's voice and saw the Holy Spirit rest on Jesus when Jesus was baptized, and he certainly heard God's voice on the Mount of Transfiguration, when Moses and Elijah, representing as Rick uh, brought out so beautifully, the law and the prophets, standing there with Jesus. And he appeared in his glorified body. The law and the prophets, Moses and Elijah, they would disappear. And who was left? Jesus. 
they existed to point to him, and we still have them, and we need to pay attention to them, Peter says, you know, as to a light in a dark place. But they're made available to us to see him more clearly, not as a set of rules to live by, but to magnify, to showcase, to reveal the preeminence of Jesus, the one to whom Peter had made himself a servant forever. I think these words may be important. Again, what in the Bible is not important, but there's something about last words, right? When my dad was dying in 2014, uh, he—so um, when somebody's near the end, sometimes there's multiple times that you think it's it, right? And you rush. You rush to the bedside. So this was— a rush to the bedside, um, and they live like five hours away from us. So you get a call that it might be it. You got to get on the road, you know, right away. It wasn't it, and I got there, and he was kind of fine. I mean, he was dying, but he was kind of fine in terms of that process, and he was awake, and he was lucid, and it would be months before, uh, be three months before he actually passed. And I said to him, because I didn't, I didn't know, right? I didn't know if he would die before I got to see him again. I said, is there anything that you want me to especially know? Is there anything you want me to especially understand? Is there anything you want to say to me, right? I, I, and I didn't know what he was— I, there was nothing between us, right? There was no, like, big moment that something had to be forgiven or something had to be talked about that I knew of, I didn't think anything like that would come out, and it didn't. And he said, trust the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. Acknowledge him in all your ways, and he'll make straight the paths of your feet. That was, that was not, those were not the last words I ever heard from my dad, but that was important to him to convey to me. And it's important for all of us, right? And here we've got Peter's last 500 words or so, and I think they may be important. Peter spent over a third of his letter writing about false prophets and their destruction. He says they're slaves of destruction. They're slaves of, uh, yeah, they're slaves of, of destruction. We've escaped the corruption of the world caused by lust. So he gives these contrasts, you know, between them and us. They're slaves. We've escaped the corruption of the world caused by lust. They promise freedom, but themselves are in bondage, seeking to be fulfilled by other things instead of by the person, Jesus. We have all things for life and godliness. The King James says, through covetousness shall they with feigned words, make merchandise of you. These false prophets, their idea, their desire is to make merchandise of you. Create a little doll of you, put it out on the, put it out on the uh, shelf. Say, let's, uh, let's make some money off you. Through feigned words, through half-truths, through things that would convince you that God is not who he is, and that you should follow them. 
that that's who these false teachers are. While we have determined that the Lord is good and we choose to make him our master forever, they seek to make merchandise of you. Jesus says, I want to purchase you with my blood. I'm not looking for your money. I'm looking for your heart, and I've bought you and redeemed you to me. In verse 9 of chapter 2, he writes of this contrast between those who have faith in Jesus and false teachers. He says, The Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment. God can do two things at once. Amazing. Not only walk and chew gum. My my mom once broke her ankle carrying a hamper and chewing gum, and she was like, that was a joke forever in our house. She couldn't... She couldn't walk and chew gum at the same time. God knows how to deliver the godly, those who have faith in him. Do you understand that you are the godly? You may not feel that way this morning, but if you have faith in Jesus, you are the godly, and he knows how to deliver you from temptation, out of temptation. And he knows how to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment. He can do both things at the same time. And we see that contrast between us and the false teachers and the people that don't know him. The unjust reserved under punishment for the day of judgment. He has a different reservation for us. If the unjust could call ahead and say, you can let my spot go. I'd like something different, please. I'd like a different day. He has a different reservation for us at his table, in his kingdom, because he judged his son in our place. Peter wrote in his first letter, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness. By his stripes you were healed. It is us that Peter now turns his attention to. The beloved. He's going to say that word four times in chapter 3 of Second Peter. Beloved. The NIV translates this as dear friends. Dear friends, which I don't think conveys the magnitude of what's been said. Kind of like <clears throat> last time I spoke, we talked about, you know, um, brotherly kindness versus love of the brethren. They have different connotations, in my mind at least. You might say, oh, Bill, they're totally, I get the magnitude in both places. I, For me, dear friends doesn't convey the magnitude of what Paul is saying here. Dear friends is like Mr. Rogers would say that to me, right? And he's a nice guy. I mean, I, and I, I think he was a believer. I don't know for sure. I haven't watched the movie. Um, but dear friends doesn't convey beloved It doesn't convey the gravity of the word. Uh, The word is agapetos, dearly loved one, object of special affection, object of special relationship. Where had Peter heard that word? Matthew 17. Let's take a look. Matthew 17.
starting in verse 1. Now, after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his brother, these men that he had taken from their occupation and given them new purpose, led them up on a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. Then Peter answered and said to Jesus, Lord, it's good for us to be here. If you wish, let us make here three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and suddenly a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. And when the disciples heard it, they fell on their faces and were greatly afraid. But Jesus came and touched them and said, Arise, and do not be afraid. And when they had lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. Now as they came down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them, saying, Tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man is risen from the dead. And here, at the end of his life, Peter is referring to this vision. Jesus said, don't tell anybody until after I've risen. He told it then, and he is telling that story up to the end of his life. God says, this is my beloved son, in whom I'm well pleased, hear him. I don't know whether it was the the brightness of the cloud that came down or God that interrupted Peter, right? Peter can't stop talking. And the cloud comes down and maybe he's saying, we're going to make some tents. And then God's, God, and Jesus is probably like, oh my goodness. Sorry, dad. You know, <laughs> I, I can't quite get him to do what I want him to do. Um, and then God says, this is my beloved son, my dearly loved one, the object of my special affection. So this same appellation is how we are addressed by Peter. This same love transferred to us now, not only from Peter, right? So we're beloved of one another. We're beloved by Peter. He's writing this as beloved, but transferred because of our connection to Jesus from God, the same belovedness that conferred on his son, in whom he was well pleased, you are the beloved. We are the beloved of God. Christ, by him living in us, joining his spirit to ours, conferring that belovedness of the Father to us, keep that status in mind as we read these last words of Peter, dearly loved by God, who has special affection for us. In Luke, uh, when Luke uh, talks about the transfiguration on the mountain, it says that um, Jesus was, he was about to accomplish. Can you imagine the excitement of Moses and Elijah when Jesus told them what he was about to do? Everything, Moses, all that stuff you've written, all the, all the problems you had with the children of Israel, all the sacrifices that had to be made over and over and over again, I'm going to wipe those out. 
and I will forgive their sin, and I will be their God, and I won't just lead them from behind and before in pillars of clouds and pillars of fire. I'll be in them. Imagine what Moses thought as Jesus was saying these things to him, what Elijah thought as he was telling them what he was going to accomplish. All right, so we're going to read through the entire chapter here, and then we'll go back and uh, detail. Beloved, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 1, Beloved, I now write to you the second epistle, in both of which I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder, that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior, knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts, and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. For this they willfully forget, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, by which the world that then existed perished, being flooded with water. But the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by that same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. But, beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat, both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you, beloved, to be in holy conduct and godliness? Looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, without spot and blameless, and consider that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction, as they do also the rest of the scriptures. You, therefore, beloved, since you know this beforehand, beware lest you also fall from your own steadfastness, being led away with the error of the wicked, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and forever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your servant, Peter. We thank you for his desire to remind us. And we thank you for your desire to remind us through him. Would you open our hearts? Would you open our minds? We are, we are stopping. We are pausing here to say, God, we want to hear from you. 
We want to know what you have for us. We want to forget about everything else and listen to your word. And we want it to have an impact on our lives. And we want to obey it and not just hear it. And will you help us this morning with that, God? Thank you, God, that you are willing to do all of those things. That you, who did not spare his own son, will not also graciously give us. Thank you, God. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So each section we're going to go back through starts with beloved, agapetos, dearly loved one, object of special affection. This is the subject of the sentence. And in the Bible, well, there was no, you know, all the punctuation was added later. So you've got these great run-on sentences, right, in the Bible that you're like, uh, uh, Bryce uh, recently has been learning about diagramming sentences in school. I personally detest grammar. Perhaps it is, you know, simply like, if there are rules, I'm not sure I can keep them, and I just don't like them in general. And so grammar and me, you know, we never got together. But it's useful, right? There are things that you can learn from grammar. And so each section starts with beloved, and this is the subject of the sentence. And then they have these verbs that go with the subject. And the type of verb, I said, Bryce, what's this kind of verb called? And he said, well, that's a transitive verb, Dad. And I was like, I believe you. What does that mean? (laughs) So that verb, it doesn't define itself, right? If I said, Ray, run, run defines itself, right? But these verbs have an object behind them that we're called to pay attention to, that we're called to take action. Becky, you know grammar? Somewhat. All right. All right. If Lisa. Well, what, so what I said to Bryce is, if this isn't accurate, I'm going to send everybody to you, right? If, so if you have complaints about my some vague understanding of this, please take them to him, not me, because I won't be able to help you. But there's an object that that verb is working on, but it always starts with beloved. It always starts with that special relationship that we have in him. And I almost never um, have names for my sermons, titles for my sermons. And I'm calling this Notes to the Beloved. Notes to the Beloved from our dear brother, Peter. Verses 1 through 7, he's going to say, Beloved, be mindful and know. Beloved, be mindful and know. He says, I write this second epistle, in both of which I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder. We'll get to be mindful and know in a second. But I want to focus on this here. I write this second epistle, in both of which I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder. His first letter, probably no more than eight years earlier, he says his desire is to stir up their pure minds by way of reminder. Uh, that doesn't make any sense, so forget about that. The word stir here is diagero. Diagero, to get up, to arouse, to stimulate, to rouse up. He says, I'm trying to stimulate, to rouse up your pure or undivided mind. <clears throat> and the means of this, the verbs indicating the actions you are about to take, is to be mindful and to know. 
stir, diagero, used in Luke chapter 8, 24, when the disciples are afraid that the boat was going to sink in a storm. It says the disciples went and woke, they diagero Jesus, saying, Master, Master, we're going to drown. Guess who's in the boat trying to wake up Jesus? Peter. Diagero. Peter is trying, by way of reminder, to rouse Jesus in us. We lose sight of him in all of our lives. We lose sight of the fact that he is with us and in us, that he lives in us. Rick's, uh, the scripture Rick was talking about, um, uh, seek God while he's near. I can butcher it too. Call on him. He lives in you. How often should you call on him? Continually. We're called pray continually. Why? Because he's always near. He's in us. And we go off after so many other things. Call to him while he's near. In the midst of something you can't wrap your mind around, God is near. I will call to him. And I'll wait on him. It's not like... Jesus is asleep inside of us, right? And we got to kind of like shake him around a little. Jesus, wake up. I need you. It's like we forget he's there. And we, our minds, our pure minds, our undivided minds need to be roused to the fact that we have living in us the Holy One, the Christ, the Son of God, the one who made everything. I want to rouse your minds. I want to stir them up. Peter's trying, to, by way of reminder, to rouse Jesus in us. He's always there. We need to be awakened to his presence. What did Jesus say to them after he told the wind and the waves to be silent? Where's your faith? Where's your faith? Our faith, our being sure of what we hope for, our being certain of what we don't see, our undivided mind of service to our master needs to be roused. Our faith needs to be roused. And Peter says, beloved, I write these things to rouse up, to wake up, to stir up your mind as to what you have. <clears throat> he says, your pure mind, our impure mind generally needs no stirring. It's awfully good at stirring all on its own. But the more we feed it, the more voracious it becomes. If you are adding in impure to your mind, your mind will say, give me more. Your flesh will say, give me more. And you will, you will say, I don't know that Jesus is with me at all because I've gone off down this other path. Stir up your pure mind. He says, beloved, dearly loved ones, be mindful. It's the first thing he says. Be The first verb, be mindful of what? What's the object here? Of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior. Down in verse 16 as well, he's writing about Paul. And in both of these places, the writings of Paul and the commandments of the apostles of Jesus are put on par with the words of the holy prophets 
and the rest of Scripture. In verse 2, it's on par with the words of the Holy Prophets. In verse 16, it's with the rest of Scripture. If you've ever questioned or somebody has come to you and said, oh, that's stuff in the New Testament, that's not really the Word of God, not according to Peter. Peter says it is the Word of God. It absolutely is the Word of God. It wasn't a bunch of old guys hundreds of years later trying to get a religion started for their own gain and out to ruin your fun that made all this up. He says this stuff that we had is just as much from God as everything before that. And you can be confident in that. It was these men who walked with him, whom he appeared to after his resurrection, who were martyred for him, who said these things collectively are the word of God. Be mindful of what we taught you and the prophets. All of these things are good for you. All of these things are profitable for you. Beloved, be mindful. Search the scriptures. The other verb, the other action associated with this subject, beloved, with us, is that we know something. He says, knowing this first, that scoffers will come, walking according to their own lusts, according to their own appetites, according to their own desires. Again, needing no help to stir those things up. They'll say, where is the promise of his coming? All things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. He says, these are the things that they forget. By the word of God, by Jesus, the word of God, the heavens and the earth were of old. He made them that that world perished in the flood. And by that same word, Jesus, the current heavens and earth are preserved, being held together by him. Held together by Jesus. This whole world that we go, oh my gosh, this place is falling apart. Guess who's holding it together? Lord Jesus. Guess who's holding you together? Lord Jesus. Guess who is delivering you from temptation? Jesus. Doing all those things. He's holding this world. He's preserving it. And he has given us preservation power to preserve parts of it too. And the people that, potentially the people that we come across, us being the salt of the earth. And this same creation, he said, is reserved for fire. And they don't just forget They willingly forget. They choose to ignore the word of God. They choose to believe the flood's just a story. When there's scientific evidence of it, and hundreds of cultures have oral and some written history of it. So Satan gets in there, and he says, let's change change the story of the promise God made about the rainbow. Let's change that and sustaining power and let's make let's make it all about seeking personal fulfillment what if you did not believe in god what else would you be at what else would there be to be after but personal fulfillment sometimes that makes us angry now rick and i did not compare notes i had no idea he was going to pray the things that he's prayed about pride month 
we didn't talk about it actually, which is kind of unusual. We usually talk a little bit about what I'm going to say at least, so I don't get in any trouble. No, it's, he he gives me great freedom. So sometimes that makes us angry that those people are co-opting that symbol that God gave. Do you think that the LGBTQT community is the only one that willfully forgets the word of God? Do you think that's it? Is that, is that where all our ire should be? Is on them and, and what they're doing? Do you know that you are far more like them than you are different? Do you understand that? Do you just died for your sins and he died for theirs? And they're being lied to and they need to learn about him. Can you imagine how hard it would be to come from that lifestyle and then admit it was wrong and be faced with a lifetime of never being able to do that thing or be that person that brought you some fulfillment along the way, that gave you some community? I have uh, a very dear friend, person I love tremendously, he's homosexual. And we had been in the church together, and he came out later. And um, I love him, and he loves me. And I said, I don't, I, I can't imagine how difficult it would be for me to not be able to f- fulfill the desire I have for sexual intimacy if there was no way within God's boundaries that I could do that, I have no idea that would be so difficult for me to be faced with never being able to fulfill that. I said, I don't, I don't see anything that you could do beside be celibate and say, I will always forego this thing that I think would be fulfilling in my life. Imagine a life where an intense desire you have no way to fulfill within the boundaries that God has given. The enemy telling you over and over and over again, you don't want to make that choice. You can't give that up. God says he'll meet that person. Right? If they will have faith in him, he will meet them. And that's amazing. But you're always, we're always faced with that choice. Will I trust God or will I keep on the thing that I want so much and I'm afraid to give up? So let's put it in these terms. What are you struggling to give up? Is it, is it that big? Is it that large in your life? How hard must it be to escape from something that Romans 1 says God has given them over to this. Why did he do it? Because he wants all to come to repentance. He doesn't want any to perish. But the enemy says, oh, look at this. God's given you over to it. 
let me just make it worse. Let me tell you that you can never make that choice. You can never come back from that sin. We need to pray to share him effectively instead of being angry. Beloved, know that scoffers will come in the last days. Know that the last days started with the resurrection of Jesus. It's an interesting thing for him to say, know this first, right? These last words of Peter, and he says, know this first, that scoffers will come in the last day, because it's going to be a problem for every generation. We're going to we're going to get to that. This issue of where is the promise of his coming is one for every believer to wrestle with. I think as we all age, right, we all go, Jesus is definitely coming back in my lifetime. And then we keep living, and he hasn't come yet, right? And the enemy would wish to discourage you. The enemy would wish to say, where is this? Things just go on as they've always go on, gone on. And we've got to fight with that. He says in verses 8 through 13, he says, Beloved, do not forget. They willfully forget, but you, beloved, you objects of special affection, do not forget this one thing. With the Lord is like a thousand, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. God is not constrained to our view of time and will not bow to our demands or desires that things happen at a particular time. 2,000 years, such a long time ago, right? 20 lifetimes. Could be in God's economy that Jesus died a couple of days ago. Jesus died a, if a, if a day, and I'm not saying that's exactly it's as, but if, if with God a day is as a 1,000 years and a 1,000 years like a day, the closeness, the proximity with which we are to the sacrifice of Jesus is really short. If he tarries, if we reach 7,000 A.D., Jesus died a week ago. If we reach 30,000 A.D., Jesus died a month ago. God is not slack concerning his promise, as some, and I would include all of us, count slackness, because we all do it sometimes. Aren't we continually wondering when he's going to do what we want? Aren't we continually asking, are we there yet, like children? Anyone to perish, but he won't stop anyone from choosing it. He'll put thing after thing after thing in your path. He'll try to draw you with, con- with cords of, of loving kindness, but he won't stop you from choosing it. In verse 15, Peter reiterates the idea. He spells it out. The long-suffering of our Lord is salvation. The waiting is a very important process for us. We don't wait just for the sake of waiting. There's work that the Lord is accomplishing in us. David was anointed by Samuel and told he'd be king, and it took 15 years for it to come to fruition. There was work that God wanted to accomplish in him. Isaiah 40, 31 says, Those that wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. We get upset in the waiting. 
We complain in waiting. We get frustrated in waiting. But God says he has something different for us in the waiting. Renewed strength, soaring, energy, and endurance. That's what he has for us in the waiting. We have to define what are we waiting for, right? We have to have like definitions here. If we're waiting for our will to be done, then we're probably not going to have renewed strength, soaring, energy, and endurance. If that's what we're waiting for. If we're waiting for his will to be done, then the promise is for these things to adhere to you. The next generation needs to see us waiting well because they may have to wait well. We need to wait well and and know that God is going to do the things that he promised in the waiting and that his patience, his long-suffering is salvation. Interesting that he doesn't say salvation for whom. We're included, I think, in that salvation. So 2,000, 7,000, 30 years, uh, 30,000 years or anything between now and then, the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. Rick addressed this well last week, so I'm not going to spend more time here, but I will share one interesting thing. Psalm 96 starting in verse 11. Let the heavens rejoice and let the earth be glad. Let the sea roar and all its fullness. Let the field be joyful and all that is in it. Then all the trees of the woods will rejoice before the Lord, for he is coming, for he is coming to judge the earth. He shall judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with his truth. How amazing is it that creation's response to being dissolved is to look forward to his coming, is to rejoice, the sea and all the fullness of it, the trees and all the forest. They rejoice before the Lord for he is coming. All creation is looking forward to the coming of the Lord. Are you? Will you join in all creation? Will the rocks have to cry out in your place instead of you singing at the coming of the Lord? I think that's amazing. We, in holy conduct and godliness, are to look for and hasten the coming of the day of God. We're to look for new heavens and a new earth. We, as the beloved, are to look for these things. So can I encourage you, beloved, that every time you use the phrase, our or my country or nation, that you remember your country is the new heavens and the new earth earth. Frame your thoughts about all the rest of the stuff 
and how you will respond, knowing with the understanding that your country is the new heavens and the new earth. We live in this land. It is not our country. We are pilgrims. We are sojourners. We are aliens. And we are strangers here. Look for the new heavens. Beloved, look for the new heavens and the new earth. Verses 14 through 16. Beloved, looking forward, be diligent and consider. Beloved, you to whom the special relationship is assigned, look forward to these things like creation does. Be diligent. Be diligent about what? Being found by him in peace without spot and blameless. Look at Ephesians chapter 5. I have to sing the song in my head to make sure I'm getting to the right place. Galatians and Ephesians. <clears throat> Ephesians chapter 5. Verse 25. So he's given direction. Paul is giving direction here to the church in Ephesus about marriage, uh, but so much more. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. Same wording that Paul uses, Peter uses here, Found in him in peace without spot and blameless. Christ accomplishing the sanctifying and the cleansing by clinging to him, by being washed in the word. If, um, if you can't, uh, so this is going to sound like I'm, I'm going to say it and then I'll try to explain it. If you can't, um, if you can't manage, and this is where it sounds like I'm being nasty to you, if you can't manage to get in the Word of God, if you can't open your Bible and sit there and read and take notes and learn of Him, please find somebody you can just at least listen to, that you would have the Word of God being poured into your life. If it's a struggle, let His Word pervade you somehow some way that you be washed by it, that you be being sanctified by it, by the faith that you obtained from him in the beginning would grow so that you be less inclined towards the world and more inclined, beloved, toward him. If you know someone who is, uh, has walked away, that, know, that knew God, Whoever your favorite Bible teacher is, say, why don't you just listen to this once in a while? They're not going to darken the doors of a church. If you, They might if you ask them. You know you've asked them many times before. Hey, why don't you listen to this guy? If they knew the truth at one point, just listen to him. Take some time. Have your faith being fed that it might grow. 
that you might be sanctified. And Don't say all those things to them. They're going to turn off. Make it simple. I'm, I'm talking to you. You've, you've got some time where you're doing nothing else. And I, I would say if you start listening, I bet you're going to start cracking open your Bible too. Because your faith will grow. Preached by hearing the message taught. <clears throat> Verse 15, consider, he says, beloved, consider that the long suffering of our Lord is salvation. Consider that the long suffering of the Lord is salvation. I think we can just let that one sit. Next time you start daydreaming, make this the subject, right? Your mind's just wandering. Make this the subject. The long suffering of the Lord, of our Lord, is salvation. Daydream on that for a while. Say this is truth. How does it change your attitude? How does it change your feelings, your attachment to the things of this world, your love for others? In a sense, eh, never mind. We don't have enough time for that. As our, he says, as also our dear, our beloved brother Paul, together with us, dearly loved, an object of special affection, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you. He says, untaught and unstable people twist his writings as they do the rest of the scriptures to their own destruction. So where we can teach and stabilize, let's love enough to do so. Where there's unstable, where there's instability, where there's untaught, let's love people enough to teach and to bring stability. Let's invest in their lives. Finally, verses 17 and 18, he says, Beloved, beware and grow. Beware lest you fall from your own steadfastness, your own stable place. We're all in danger of becoming untaught and unstable. Beware lest you fall from your own steadfastness, being led away with the error of the wicked. Steadfastness, the word is stirigmos, secure position, security, firmness. The position Your steadfastness is a position. It's like a parapet, the high ground, a strong tower, the hiding place, the shelter under God's wings. It is a position, your steadfastness. The position remains. The position is still there, but you're led elsewhere. You walk out of the steadfastness that God has offered to you. Beloved, he says, don't do it. Don't walk out of the secure position that I have for you. Don't be led away. The wonderful thing for all of us is that the position stays. It's a place of permanence that God has given us, but we have to beware not to be led out of it. You can all think, I can easily just see myself having done that a million times that God has created a steadfastness for me here and something shiny over here has got me to leave the secure place, the stirigmos that he obtained for me. Beloved, don't be led 
out of it. Don't wander in your mind from what God has given you. Praise God that he does not take away our steadfastness. He does not take away that secure position, but he allows us to repent and get right back in it. And he says, Beloved, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and forevermore. Amen. Peter wrote about, and we went over growth in chapter 1, how lack of it leads to blindness, causing you to forget even that you've been cleansed from your past sin. What a terrible, terrible thing to forget. I want to finish here in John chapter 17 with more words that Peter heard Jesus say. John 17, starting in verse 1. Jesus spoke these words, lifted up his eyes to heaven, and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may also may glorify you, as you have given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, beloved, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I've glorified you on earth, I finished the work which you have given me to do. And now, O oh Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. When Peter writes, To him be glory both now and forevermore, he knew that God was glorifying his Son, glorifying his Son in himself. And it's so easy for Peter to say, to him be all glory, now and forevermore, because he knows where that glory comes from, the glory he had with God from the beginning. So, beloved, dearly loved ones, those to whom God has special regard and affection, be mindful, know, do not forget Look forward, be diligent, consider, beware, and grow. Father, we need your help in all of these things. And we thank you that it all starts with the position that you have put us in as your beloved. How amazing that you'd put your son in us and that you'd transfer your love of him to love of us. I know it's not exactly the same, God. I know there's a difference between us and Jesus. 
but it's so much more than we could ask or imagine. Please help us, God, to take these actions, to remember who we are, to be salt and light to the world, to the hardest of cases, God. If we get to a point where we're throwing our pearls before swine, let us know, but help us not to assume someone is that before we've loved them, God. We need you, Lord. Help us to wait well. In Jesus' name, amen.